0: Smith with you again on a beautiful sunny winter afternoon. And um, last night and this morning, I have been reading a book of poetry called The Smell of Blood. And um, this is important work, and I hope that uh, Ken Stewart and I, Ken Stewart is the author we'll have a conversation that will be helpful. Ken Stewart is a Vietnam War veteran who found poetry as a way to come back home. He found that like a country can't escape its history, he could not escape his baggage. And no number of southwestern sunsets could change that fact. He currently is an emergency physician working on an Indian reservation. Ken, good to be here with you. And um, I just want to say again, you're the author of The Smell of Blood. Tell me, how does it feel to write poetry?
1: It's a necessary part of my life. Okay. It's a healing and joyous and painful kind of experience in a lot of ways but it's just kind of necessary you know some people do a lot of working out to relieve stress or to harmonize their life and stuff like that for me if I'm not writing um, not just about war but writing then I don't feel complete or settled or happy Okay,
0: so this book of poetry is about your experiences during the Vietnam War, during your tour in Vietnam and on the border with Cambodia. Why do you choose to publish these poetic stories
1: at this time? Well, it seems like, uh, first of all, I have really strong opinions about the impact of war and questions about the necessity of going to war. And right now we're doing essentially the same thing as far as I can tell that we did in Vietnam, probably in many other wars. And uh, I think that our culture has become very desensitized to a lot of, the physical kind of aspects of war, you know, we have very graphic movies, we have all kinds of war games and stuff that people get into that show a lot, uh, and you, very visual, but um, they totally deny the true impact of war, which is emotional. Um, you talk about soul injury and death, or, you know, I mean, whatever it is that animates us in life, whatever your religious beliefs are, or, considerations. The whole fact is that war is about as terrible an experience as anybody as a victim or a perpetrator can be involved in. So I think it's real important to that people kind of pay attention to that. It's an uncomfortable thing, you know, talking about war uh, for warriors and for um, their families or friends or people that, you know, have relationships with them. And it's a very uh, damaging experience for those that survive in one shape or another, and those that don't. And it's, uh, the people that decide about going to war don't seem to have much connection with the realities, whether it's strategic or emotional, of what they're about to do. I mean, I'm always, and in, in I think what we're doing right now today is a prime example of that, a you know, very intelligent um, very educated uh, people being very, very stupid uh, with other people's lives.
0: Absolutely. That's what I think when I hear uh, 30,000 troops. I think 30,000 bodies, bodies, people's bodies. But I wanted to say, you're right, we don't We have some amazing movies about war, etc., Um, but we don't have smell-o-vision. We don't have the smells of war. And uh, so I think your book is well-titled The Smell of Blood. How can a person who has not been to war and who is not a physician or a nurse know what the smell of blood is? Can you describe it for us?
1: Well, there's the physical smell. You know, the way it smells, it's pretty unique. It's this coppery, metallic, sweet, warm kind of smell. Um, Emotionally, it's very different working as as a physician and, you know, blood sprain here and there and really bad traumas and stuff like that is really very different when then when you are exposed to blood in an environment that's you're in danger so it's different just the fact that the physical fact of the smell of blood is really different than the emotional impact of it um, I mean it's pretty traumatic if you're um, doing some really dramatic interventions with somebody say opening someone's chest and holding their heart in your hand and doing something really dramatic like that that's a very profound experience, but it's really, and it has a lot of olfactory um, kind of uh, experience there, too. But it's really different than if there's, that smells around and it's associated with your potential harm or injury. Meaning like, you know, somebody, that may be your blood next or something, I don't mm-hmm. know, empowers mm-hmm. that that kind of experience or it, it potentiates it. So,
0: blood associated with the edge of your own death. This is actually a thread that, for me, runs through this book, is um, being at the edge of death, being at the edge of your own death, mm-hmm. and um, coming back from that edge. I wanted to ask you, uh, you must know your book pretty well, Um Would you like to read um, part of a poem? Because the poems are like three or four pages, but I would love if you would read part of a poem so that the good people who are listening can get a a feeling of your writing. Well, how about if
1: I read the first one? It's kind of short. Great. And complete. Um, It's called My Olympics. My Olympics were in a hot, dirty, wild place called Vietnam. The crowds were screaming monkeys, screeching insects, and vegetable indifference. The judging was hostile, severe, and final as death. The swimming event was through your own sweat and the monsoon rain, sometimes through mud somewhere between quick and cold lava, an event that took a while to get into. There was no quitting until it was done. I did poorly in leech wrestling, but made up for it in mosquito swarming and feeding. My high jumps left me doing psychedelic somersaults and a kaleidoscope of tracers, flashes and explosions of red and white. I failed to place an ear renewal. I admit I didn't adequately train for the event, but I did excel in jungle dash and hurdles. A twelve-minute dash through hundreds of pissed-off armed men. Hostile and sending bullets like deathly clouds of sleet through the air, the first man dead before he hit the ground. My steeple chase was a six day run through the jungle, chased by dogs and 500 vampires all hungry for blood. To survive in a fiery finish, the thumping of applause of bullets passing through helicopter skin. The groupies were young, cheap, dirty, and at least infected not readily impressed by two-mile dash through jungle and shrapnel. The awards and medals were corrupted, some very deserving mixed with those of politics and lies. The ultimate judgment, survival. Some by luck, some by skill, some by karma, but all wounded, stained, and forgotten after the closing ceremony.
0: Did you win anything by going to war?
1: Do you mean medals or accolades?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I can barely imagine what you lost because I've known some Vietnam veterans. But I want to ask you this question. Did you gain anything?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. I actually have one of my poems. It's, I talk about going there for the whole the whole point of me going there was for the experience because I was born and raised in a military family and you know grew up on recondo courses and was skydiving in the army uh, skydiving club when I was 16. This was all just a natural progression, and I went there to gain you know manliness. I actually thought I'd come back with you know hair on my chest and all those things and, and I came back with a hell of a lot more than I even could imagine. Um, not what I thought. Uh, and it was pretty painful, but, you know, definitely I got a lot out of it. I think it's shaped my whole life since that.
0: Describe um, a gift from the war.
1: From hmm. your time at war. Human compassion. Mm. Uh I mean, there's a lot of things. Insight about judgment. Uh, One of the things you do in a war is you you impersonalize the people you're fighting or attacking. And, um... I realized that for what it is. And, you know, I mean, to bring it to what's going on right now, I mean, We're in a couple different countries and we're kicking down doors and terrorizing people, you know, looking for evil people. Um, How would we feel if some Iraqis or Afghanis are kicking down our door looking for evil people? Mm -hmm. The people who fight the wars, who are in the daily interactions with people on both sides whether they're warriors or you know innocent civilians or other combatants they're all you know I mean the whole thing about pawns in the game of somebody else is really really valid and um, it's another thing I think I would bring up in the book is that I'm really to me it really pisses me off and causes me a lot of anger that the people who cause so much harm and go about it with such impunity, you know, unless there's karma, for real, they get away with doing incredibly bad things.
0: So um, you speak about uh, a ranger as a poem, your inspired by, by the campfire, mm-hmm. and you speak about a ranger um, talking to a, a new soldier and mm-hmm. uh, roasting an ear collected from a dead enemy and then eating a piece um, would you suggest that Obama eat a piece of roasted ear Iraqi roasted ear
1: <laughs> yeah. not really but I would definitely have his daughters be the first to go to be kicking down doors and driving trucks down roads and jumping from helicopters to do those things. I mean, um, second to himself doing that and having the whole experience. I mean, you know, just chewing a little ear, that's insufficient.
0: (laughs) Well, this is a very good uh, moment to be talking about this because um, I have to say that it was a few days ago that... uh, uh, Obama spoke at his Nobel Prize winning and uh, he said uh, uh, violence is necessary at times. Uh, I paraphrase.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I've been wondering lately, I mean, what could war be necessary for?
1: Well, I, I do believe that you need that there are evil people that whose intent is to overpower you physically. I mean, since the days of our origins, I'm sure that's true. There's always somebody who wanted to take the power and by force subjugate it. I mean, look at history; it's full of that. And uh, so, I would say that since I don't support somebody being able to take over countries or peoples or enslave people for their own benefit. Um, that maybe war and defense against people like that would be necessary. However, that being said, that's kind of idealistic because I don't know of any war, even the Great War, World War II, you know, with good intentions and stuff, uh, that wasn't totally corrupted and manipulated by, you know, the people that benefit from war. In Japan, the people that ran or that... Um, built up the industry of Japan to allow them to fight us, and the same in Germany. And in America, they're all cousin brothers, and they're still here, and they they're still here. benefited, and their families are the kings and queens and dukes and whatever of old. They're, that's still going on. So even in World War II, we have these people who are, you know, working for the great evil, and then we hire them up as soon as that war is over, and. They become an integral part of our society and our political culture and our war efforts. So I don't know how... I mean, if somebody kicked in my door and wanted to endanger my family or harm my kids or whatever, I would feel totally justified um, to be physically violent about that. At the same time, I would be filled with a great deal of sadness because I know that what would happen is there. There's an extreme burden and responsibility whenever you do that. It only feels good for a really, really short time, presuming you're victorious. Things work out your way. Uh, and then you're stuck with that. You don't get to go back. Taking a life is a very personal and significant event. I mean, I think we should be feeling that way about animals that you eat and stuff like that as well. I mean expand that into taking a human being's life is you've taken
0: human beings' lives in the war yes uh, sanctioned God war. was on my side God was on your side, exactly <laughs> how, how did that feel?
1: Well, now, and I talk about this in the book too. Right. That's a significantly personal question. Yes, it is. And it's a lot more comfortable. I think I mentioned the. the um, Do you want to read it? Um, gee, that's kind of a mid poem. I wonder if that would work. Um, well, it's kind of. I had some guy one time who uh, asked me that question kind of like, oh, what's it like to kill somebody? Yeah. And uh, I told him, um, basically, I don't know if I can find it that quick in here, but I basically told him, I said, you know, that's a really personal question. you yeah. would rather talk about who's got a bigger dick and we'll get real personal. Right. And, uh, you know, the thing that really pissed me off about that, and I had to admit I was pissed off, was that he really, I didn't get the sense that he really cared about the answer. Right. It was a very superficial question. Right. And that bothers me probably more than anything about you know um, communicating experiences and stuff on that level with the general public. And I mean, and that's part of the reason, again, that I wrote this book was that I wanted to share that. You know, it isn't a simple question. Now, what's it like to kill somebody? Ah, you know, I do know. And for some people, it might be very superficial experience, but um, there's a guy, uh, um, a lieutenant colonel, a retired lieutenant colonel who taught at West Point, uh, I think his name was David Grossman, and he did a whole a book, and his field of study was on killing, and how to, his perspective was how do you get desensitized men to make that decision to kill without hesitation, and his statistics were maybe two percent of people can kill with no qualms at all maybe another two percent can kill without too much qualm, and then everybody else has some level of uh, baggage from that I don't know how the hell he got that data or what it really comes from but it seems about right to me you know there's very few people can do it in a superficial way everybody that participates has to make some accommodation for that fact I don't know if I really answered your question or
0: I'm asking this question because I think that those of us have come to the edge of it but the edge of it is not the action itself um, I think it's important for those who have thought that many times, because each one of us thinks about that, Mm -hmm. Um, to know the difference and also for a matter of um, having, um, having a true deep compassion
1: for the veteran. Yeah, it's a difficult thing for me. I know there's a lot of people diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a lot of dysfunctional ways of trying to react with the burden of of guilt or whatever that people are bringing home. And some of it's kind of jive and some of it's, um, you know, just doing the best you can. And there's all kinds of variations. Some people come home and beat their wives, kill their wives or their boyfriends or whatever. I mean, now there's this whole thing mixed up with uh, in the war where you have men and women that are coming back and not just men. That wasn't my experience, but... um, I think it's just really difficult for anybody to come back. And some people pretend that it's okay. And... um, i don't think it's okay for hardly anybody and uh but what is difficult for for veterans to is to express that in a way that doesn't make them too vulnerable or too guilty or too whatever and um, I think that's a real i mean I killing somebody is as personal as is your most intimate sexual encounters okay. Whatever that is, however fetished or perverse or embarrassing that may be, that's how it truly is emotionally, graphically you can get in. It's very easy, well, it's easier to be graphic about it. No, I put an axe in his skull and it seemed to kill him. And I took off, didn't think about it, whatever. That doesn't, you know, really happen for most people because... You dream about it, you think about it, you you know for me I transported myself into the other side of that, knowing that what's fair, you know? Why does that person get to die and you don't, you know, and how does that all come around and when's your time due? Doesn't make sense. Some really deserving people where there one minute dead the next and some really undeserving people get away with everything. It's just craziness.
0: Well, thank you for, um, for expressing that uh, it's an act of incredible intimacy. And um, I'm just wondering how... Um, how, the, how does the army... It Desensitize a person so they can live with that.
1: Well, they started you know based on studies like this guy Grossman did and stuff they based, they realized that through repetitious behavior you can get somebody to react. The, only, the problem with that is you can get them to shoot, which is a big step. I think only 25 percent of people in combat in World War II soldiers actually shot their weapons, even though they were being fired at. And I think in Vietnam and Korea it got was better and then Vietnam I think it was over fifty percent. These are people that are actually receiving fire. Right. And should be defending themselves. Sure. And they really improved on that through they have programs where you run through buildings and you shoot at pop up targets and then you have live fire exercises where you go through the field and have pop up targets and things like that and it's to get you to shoot without thinking. Um And that's all well and good and pretty efficient. And, you know, now the computer games have really made it incredibly efficient. But the result of that is what this book's about. Because it's easy to wiggle your finger Mm -hmm. or to throw a grenade or pull a, you know, a pin or something that causes mayhem on the other end. And you still do that. You still cause the damage and to yourself and everybody else. That's the part the military really doesn't have a hold on or a realistic um, set of interventions or something for. They really don't. Um, they, there They is a lot of judgment against people who are post-traumatic stress or depressed after war and they come back and nowadays too the guys in during the time of Vietnam you went for one tour That's all you had to do and then you if you were a career person you'd go back and maybe at least one other time but you didn't have to go back unless you wanted to go back you had to kind of keep going back on purpose nowadays what we have is you have people that go and then they come back for a couple months, and they go back, and they're back for a couple months. You guy's been over five or six times, five or six tours, uh, five or six years of their lives. They're just joined from their family, their support groups. They're terrorized and upset all the time and nervous and stressed, even if they're not getting shot at. Then you add in the whole thing of physical conflict and combat. Um, That's an overwhelming amount of stress. And when you come back, the military actually looks at that as a fault. As a weakness they got they have token um, should they have token efforts towards um, trying to address the issue, but they 're not really doing that it's... well in this book, you have a poem about uh, never
0: showing that you 're afraid and that 's a very very important part
1: absolutely mm-hmm. um I mean, I remember personally being more afraid of being afraid than being afraid. Wow. Um, and, and I would rather have been dead, pretending not to be afraid, than to admit, I'm scared shitless, I think I'm just going to go the other way. People don't do that, and that's prevalent, because you don't get support for doing that. You know, for going the other way, for being rational or whatever. People say, charge the machine gun. I mean, that's a stupid thing to do. You have to have a better argument and strategic plan in order not to charge that machine gun and get killed. You know, there's, and I've had friends that did that.
0: But what is it? To, you want to belong? You want to people to care about you? What is it that drives a person to do,
1: charge the machine gun? That's a good question. There's a bunch of levels you can answer that on people. Sometimes people don't think Usually, um, when people... In Vietnam, I've seen people died when they first got there and when they were leaving. So, aha uh-huh. And uh, I think that you make some stupid mistakes. You've watched a lot of war movies, and somebody does stupid things and gets away with it. Bullets seem to miss them. And uh, at first, people make those kind of mistakes where they say, okay, and they do it, and they're killed. Um, the people that see that are educated and kind of back off a little bit and don't. Do that same kind of. They uh, they change their behavior accordingly, um, but that's in the beginning. After that, uh, some people just get filled with bloodlust. Sometimes you get overwhelmed by the chemicals that combat brings. You become full of. Um, if things are going well, you can feel pretty omnipresent and, or all powerful and godlike. It's really, it's really a rush. And even you know, if things don't work out really well it's always a rush. The chemicals associated with, you know, fighting and being in death's or, are as powerful as any drug ever made, as far as I can tell.
0: So how uh, have you, Ken Stewart, um, many uh, veterans do not adjust to life um, here back home, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, you are a very useful human being and a poet. How did that happen,
1: that you didn't fall on the other side? I don't know. (laughs) It's uh, complicated. I'm not sure why me and somebody else. Maybe that's my personality. The... um, I make some accommodations and have decided not to accept a certain level of guilt in my past, but at the same time, I've been doing public service for 40 years, <laughs> and uh, I realize that for what it is, you know, that's some payback. Um,
0: Forty years, you said.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, I've been back, maybe longer, but I have to do the math, and. Uh, that's just always been, for me, you know, I mean, I still, my stress dreams are violent dreams. My my gun, I'm shooting, but people, the bullets aren't working. They're not hitting what they should. This is many decades later. That's my stress dream. It isn't like being naked in high school. It's those kind of dreams. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, I'm... I think a little bit of it was luck I've had uh, a lot of support when I needed it and um, uh, individually I'm really um, fairly stubborn so
0: What are you hoping to uh, transmit through this book to the people who read it?
1: The awesome burden and responsibility that you're asking of people or of yourself when you go to war or you send people to war or you talk about or think about doing war. There's just no way around it. It's a terrible burden and responsibility for the people that you ask to actually pay the dues. And I wish that the people like Dick Cheney, George Bush, Uh, Robert McNamara, Johnson, who are all these people who... uh, Kissinger, many, many people who, at least on our side, have um, instigated such a bad, evil thing in the name of God, country, and whatever. And mostly it's for, you know, money and private gain, but I wish that people would have to carry that burden, could, could feel that burden... He asked if, you know, Obama should eat it here. No, he should do this. He should be the first one in line to, to put up what you're commanding. And that's, of course, an unrealistic expectation in the modern world because the suicide bombers aren't the people that are running things. The, the uh, soldiers aren't the ones running things. And in fact, um, the soldiers in Iraq are... Um, supporting something contrary to what Obama and his administration wants to do. They're more into um, Greg Mortensen, a man who wrote Three Cups of Tea, and has been in Afghanistan doing an incredible amount of uh, education and stuff in um, Afghanistan. That's had more impact than any kind of military expedition, and and it's had positive versus negative impact, which military expeditions have. And the people... The Special Operations Command, all the military command or uh military academies are supporting this. The people that aren't are the generals who are the politicians in the military the, some of the, the ranking generals and uh the politicians are political decisions not a military military decision what we're doing and um
0: it is not a military decision it's a political decision is what you say
1: absolutely. You ask the military people, and they say, well, give us a mission. The mission is to get rid of the Taliban. You don't go in and kick down doors and alienate people and shoot innocent folks that just happen to be there and put yourself in an untenable position. You figure out, you know, how to do that. And the special operations whole focus is to be able to do that in a way that's productive. And political considerations overrule that because the commander-in-chief is the president. And... uh, I just have to say that Obama's speech I thought was a real cop-out at the Nobel Peace Prize, by the way. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, I'll take the Peace Prize, and I, I would like to have peace, but we got to kick some ass first, there's too much evil. Um, <laughs> but that's another topic.
0: So what would you like to say to a veteran who is having a hard time or... A woman veteran who's having a hard time. And um, first of all, read this book because it's full of heart and it's
1: real and it's authentic. Well, I don't know if this is a therapeutic instrument for anybody else. It was for me um, to write it. I, you know, didn't even start talking about the war until my kids were getting to be like draft age even though we didn't have a draft and uh, it's been a long process I would say to people who are having a hard time is you need to talk to some folks and you need to talk to some vets and you need to uh, you know communicate what you're thinking because honestly I don't think just anybody you go to psychiatrists, psychologist, if they haven't they don't have the power to share what the guilt that another veteran could share. I had a friend one time who I was trying to get to talk to me about his experience, because he was fairly dysfunctional behind it, and and he was going. He wouldn't talk about it, you know. He said, ah, "Well, one time I accidentally killed this kid, and but you know, it was a firefight, and you know, blah blah blah." And there was and uh, there was something else going on, and he couldn't talk about it. I go like, "Why? What? You're afraid I'm going to judge you? You know?" what can you say that I haven't been through, you know? And still, he couldn't make that leap. But I think that a lot of people can. And if you have somebody who has been there and shares that burden, it would be real helpful if you could communicate with
0: them. Good. Is there something you would like to read
1: of your book? Hmm. Um, Well, here's one It's called Doubt. Is that okay? Yes, it really is. Friends, dead, lost and blown away dreams, potential into nothing after sharing space with you. It's scary at first. It could have been you. You feel some relief, feel somehow special, blessed, graced, and then guilty. Maybe somehow you held back in the fight, gave somewhat less than you could. Maybe show less than the proper enthusiasm to struggle. Maybe let them wave their red flag in death's face, make more quick movements to distract death away from you. You can think about it. Recall your heroic stances. Remember clearly your smooth, capable displays of competence and daring. You know you didn't hold back. You fought a good fight. You know it's true. It was just a matter of bad luck, bad timing or short-timing karma, their karma. But the feeling creeps up. They died, not you. Inside, you doubt, deeply doubt your worth, your courage, and even your faith. And the next time, you dance a little closer to death, shake your mojo loudly and strut, more afraid of being afraid than afraid. Fire up the hormones, dance the adrenaline rush, Lost in the flow of chemicals, you're just along for the ride. The chemicals that keep you up and buffered from more dead friends, more tattered bodies, until the euphoria of survival slowly fades away and you wonder again. Seek sense or reason in death's choices. Seek meaning in your survival. Transiently comfortable to have made it. Happy, for sure, but still afraid you may be cheating. Cheating who, yourself, your friends, or death? Death and doubting are D words, like dismal, depressed, destroyed, deranged, disenfranchised, disillusioned, disgusted, dismayed, detrimental, dastardly, deceived, dispossessed, and debauched, which leads us to drugs, a side trip, seeking that euphoric comfort of struggle, some work, some time, Somehow and in some way But death still brings doubt Whether you feel dejected, rejected, or neglected just depends on the timing, the space When death looks straight into your eyes, a stare your soul can feel Nothing you do to escape can be anything less than necessary No more doubts, no more philosophical interpretations, no more wondering of even the weather and until death is not distracted head straight for your heart It wonder and doubt it's amazing how quickly that doubt can dissolve just living leaving the doubts for another time maybe tomorrow not today
0: beautiful so where can we get this book how can we get this
1: book it's uh, in some bookstores, stores, but it's on Amazon.com. It's in com, Powell's, and a bunch of other online sources. Excellent.
0: And we're speaking about The Smell of Blood
1: by Ken Stewart.
0: Ken, is there something you'd like to say in closing?
1: Well, I'd just like to encourage everybody to, next time you're in a position to be around somebody who's had experiences of war or on any level that um, be more courageous and more open in hearing what they have to say because it's educational for all of us. And um, maybe only through sharing the horror and painful realities will we ever get peace.
0: Thank you so much, Ken Stewart.
1: You're welcome. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making your own tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.